This is the 5 a.m. Miracle, episode number 451, Becoming Indistractable with Neary Yall. Good morning and welcome to the 5 a.m. Miracle. I am Jeff Sanders and this is the podcast dedicated to dominating your day before breakfast. My goal is to help you bounce out of bed with enthusiasm, create powerful, lifelong habits, and tackle your grandest goals with extraordinary energy. In the episode this week, I share one of my favorite past interviews where I speak with Neri Yall, author of Indistractable. Neri and I discuss how you can learn how to control your attention and gain traction in ways you've never imagined before. Enjoy. Let's begin today with a bit of your background. I mean, you have a great new book out, but I want to first get to kind of your personal story here. I know you've got a great bio with lots of fun stuff you've done in your life. So can you give us a quick kind of like highlight reel of the things that you've done and what led up to this book? Sure. So let's see. The most relevant part of the story uh, begins when I wrote a book called Hooked uh, about five years ago now, which is all about how to build habit-forming products. And uh, that came out of my background in uh, Silicon Valley tech companies. I, I started two companies, and the latter uh, was the, the latest company was a company that was at the sec- intersection of gaming and advertising. And I saw a lot of these behavioral design tactics using consumer psychology to influence behavior. And I thought, well, that would be a great thing for everyone to use so that it's not just the big tech companies like Facebook and Google and you know Slack and these big tech uh, behemoths that, that use behavioral design and consumer psychology. What if all of us could use these techniques to improve customer service and retention for all sorts of products? And so that's why I wrote Hooked. And the intention behind Hooked was always to help you know, not the gaming companies, not the social media companies. It was to help small businesses. It was to help anyone who's designing a product or service to change user behavior, to form healthy habits in users' lives. Now, what we also see, and along with a lot of the good that this tech can provide, we also see some potential downside. And I found that I had become, in some ways, unhealthfully hooked to some of these products. And as an industry insider, I was kind of concerned, right, <laughs> that, that sometimes we can overuse these, these technologies. And so I, I found myself distracted. Uh, I was distracted at times with my family. I'm embarrassed to say with my, with my daughter, I wasn't fully present with her. I would check my phone when I really should be fully present with, with someone I love very much. Uh, my work was suffering. I couldn't write the way it seemed like I used to be able to in the past. I couldn't focus on what I wanted to do. Uh, and so my professional life and my home life was suffering. And so I really wanted to get to the bottom of not just tech distraction, but all distraction. And so that's why I started exploring this topic of, you know, how do we control our attention and choose our life? How do we live the kind of life that we want to live consistent with our values without constantly going off track due to all these distractions in our life? Yeah, which is a great segue to the book today because uh, your great book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And I, I love the topic because I've known you know for a long time as a guy that discusses productivity here on this podcast, I have two books of productivity, that I know that distraction is kind of like at the core of what it means uh, to not get things done. And so I'm curious from that perspective and your work in tech, like why are distractions and, and technology itself uh, so difficult for us today? Because I think that for a long time, maybe we manage it better or something, or there's just more tech. But what do you see as kind of the core problem with today's tech and today's distractions? 
Well, we should start by realizing that tech uh, did not create distraction, right? That <laughs> right. even if Facebook were to shut down tomorrow, right? Let's say Zuckerberg said, hey, you know what? I've got enough money. Uh, I- I'm tired of your moaning about how terrible my company is. I'm shutting it down. That's it. No more Facebook. It's not like people would start reading Chaucer and Shakespeare in their free time, <laughs> right? We would go back to the things that have always distracted us. Gossip and the news and soap operas and, you know, all kinds of stuff has distracted us. In fact, we we know that Socrates and Aristotle debated the nature of what they called akrasia, this tendency to do things against our better judgment, 2,500 years ago. People <laughs> have been complaining about how distracting the world is these days and how they can't get anything done for 2,500 years. So this is not a new problem. What is new is the access to distraction. Mm. The fact that these devices are in our pockets all day long, the fact that we sit in front of these screens in the workplace all day long means that if it is distraction you seek, it is easier than ever to find. And of course, these companies will take advantage of the fact that you are looking for distraction. And so all of that, I agree with you know, some of the tech critics out there that talk about how just, you know, these tech companies are doing it to you. If you give them the opportunity to do it to you, absolutely, they will. They'll, they'll get you, they'll get your kids, they'll get your colleagues, because that's their business model. Now, what I don't agree with is that there's nothing we can do about it. That I think the popular narrative these days is, you know, these companies are doing it to us, they're hijacking our brains, they're building addictive products, but that doesn't mean we're powerless. And in fact, what I want to give people is to empower them with the skills to become indistractable, not just to manage tech distraction, but to manage all distraction. As I mentioned, distraction is not new. So whether it comes in the form of, you know, watching too much football on TV or, or, or too many crossword puzzles or, you know, whether it's turning to the bottle to escape your present reality, if that, you know, if that's a form of escape or checking too much email or Facebook or whatever it might be. Anytime we do things that are against our better interests, things that we do uh, that are not done with intent, that's what distraction is all about. The way we define distraction is not uh, that it is, you know, the opposite of, of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end, if you notice, in the same five letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, which spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you are doing with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action that you take that pulls you away from what you want to do with intent. And so the idea here is not to moralize and say, oh, you know, the way you spend your time is morally inferior to how I spend my time, right? Candy Crush and, uh, and, and, and Netflix and, and Facebook, that's bad. But me spending my time on crossword puzzles and football, that's okay. No. Anything that you do with intent, as long as you plan to do it and it is consistent with your values, do it, enjoy it. But if it's not done with intent, if you're doing it because of the app maker's schedule or because somebody else wants you to do something that is not consistent with your values and the way you want to spend your time, well, that is distraction. And that's what we need to fight against. Oh, I love that breakdown. That's fantastic. Because I was just thinking as you were talking that, you know, one of the things that I know that when, when I'm better at blocking distractions, it's because I'm really passionate and focused on something that I really care about. I'm drawn to it and I want to spend more time in that thing. And then you, you know, this idea of traction is beautiful because I love this like thought that, you know, we are pulled towards something that then captures our attention in a better way. So I guess kind of my, my next follow up question to that would be if we're in this mode, where we are pulled into something. Uh, 
how do we then manage the distractions that are kind of inherently built into the tools we're using? Because I know in your book, you discuss this idea of kind of you know, making sure that you've blocked your phone's notifications and your computer. And there's things that are just kind of built into our lives. They're always there. Like, how do we live in a world where distraction is almost kind of inherent in what we do? Yeah, yeah. Well, so we talked about traction and we talked about distraction. Traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent, and distraction is anything that pulls you away. Now, to answer your question of how do we start managing distraction, we have to understand the two things that move us towards traction or distraction. And there are only two things. They are either external triggers or internal triggers. External triggers is what you mentioned just a second ago. It's these pings, dings, rings, and things Mm. that prompt us to either traction or distraction. Now, they're not always bad. Remember, we can use these technologies for very good reasons. For example, if you wake up in the morning and your alarm clock gets you up in the morning so that you can go ahead to the gym or have breakfast with your family or attend that important meeting you plan to, to, to be, attend, well, that's moving you towards traction. That's a good thing. But if you're sitting in that meeting or if you're spending time with your family and your phone buzzes and uh, you plan to be fully present with, with these people, but now you're checking your phone instead, well, that's moving you towards distraction. So it's not that external triggers are always bad. It's about we have to use them with intent. But that is actually not as big of, the, of a problem as what, what I've researched has, has, has concluded that the actual, the number one source of distraction are not these external triggers. It's not the pings and dings around us. It is in fact the internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. That most distraction doesn't come from our phones, doesn't come from our computers, it comes from within us. That the icky, sticky truth that a lot of us don't want to admit to ourselves, myself included, before I did this research, is that we turn to distraction when we feel stressed, bored, lonesome, uncertain, fatigued. It's these uncomfortable emotions that draw us to use a distracting device as an emotional pacification system. And until we understand that fact, no life hacks, no tips and tricks, no productivity methods will work until we understand that distraction starts from within. That in fact, time management is pain management. That has to be the first step. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it's a good, ah, the the emotional side of things makes so much sense to me. Um, Can you kind of go into more of this idea of the skills we need to become indistractable, because I know that that's a core part of the book and a core part of kind of this idea of maybe managing our emotions a little bit better. But like what kinds of skills do we need to have in order to kind of, I guess, tap into those emotions and be able to to fight against those? Absolutely. Yeah. So there are, let me just go over the four big steps. There's only four steps to becoming indistractable. It turns out they're actually not that hard to follow uh, once you know the right steps and you do them in the right order. So the first step is to master these internal triggers. And so the two techniques that you can use here is either to learn methods to cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner. And this is what I go into in the book. I tell you about how to reimagine the trigger reimagine the task, and reimagine your temperament. So reimagining the trigger is all about seeing that uncomfortable state in a new way and channeling it for good, something that I think is unfortunate in most people's minds and, and, and the, the, the personal productivity and, and uh, self-help industry has unfortunately propagated this myth that if you're not satisfied, if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And I want to challenge that myth because it turns out from an evolutionary basis we are not designed 
for satisfaction. Hmm. We are not built to be happy. These are fleeting sensations. Our base state is dissatisfaction, is wanting more. Now, if we're not careful, that can get the best of us. It can lead, lead to hurtful behaviors. It can lead to distraction to take our mind off of those sensations. Instead, if we accept that we are not designed to be happy all the time, then in fact, these uncomfortable sensations are perfectly normal. And all we have to do is learn tactics to cope with them, to reimagine them in a healthier manner. We can use them for good. We can use that boredom, that uncertainty, anxiety, fear, whatever, to move us towards traction as opposed to distraction. We can also learn ways to reimagine the task. So, you know, a lot of us think that we can motivate ourselves to do something by adding a spoonful of sugar to a task, the Mary Poppins method, right? Mm. Have a reward at the end of something you don't really feel like doing to get you to do it. Turns out, that doesn't really work over the long term. There's been a lot of evidence that shows that extrinsic motivators uh, are not as effective as intrinsic motivators. And so we can actually learn to play anything. This is the words of Ian Bogos, who's a researcher at Georgia Tech. He's done this research that I reveal in the book around how you can turn any task into something that is not necessarily enjoyable, but is fun, which is kind of weird. You think fun is always the same thing as enjoyable. Not necessarily. If you learn how to make something playful, you can actually uh, use it to pass the time quicker and get through that task that you otherwise didn't want to do in a, in a way that you play that experience. And there's a few rules for how to do that. And then finally, we can reimagine our temperament. So one thing that I see is, is so prevalent out there these days is that people fall into two camps when it comes to distraction. When they get distracted, they do what I used to do, which is to either blame or shame. Blame or shame. You either blame your stupid boss for constantly emailing you or that coworker <laughs> that keeps calling meetings or uh, the, the phone or Facebook or iPhone, you know, somebody to blame or you shame and you say, oh, you see, I'm getting distracted again. I must have a short attention span. Maybe I have some kind of disorder. There's probably something wrong with me and you shame yourself. And for the vast majority of people, by the way, little asterisks, some people really do have a pathology like, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder or, or an addiction disorder. Those people do exist. It's about, you know, single digit percentages of the population. So there's a 95, 99% chance there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> but we tend to fall into these two camps of either blaming or shaming and neither of those are the answer. That in fact, when we tell ourselves that we have a certain temperament, that we are designed a certain way. That's just the way I am. We reinforce these self-sabotaging behaviors. And so that has to do with reimagining our temperament. So that's, that's a, in, in a nutshell. There's a lot more there, of course. I'm trying to con condense it. But those are some of the tactics around how we can master these internal triggers, which is step one of four, becoming indistractable. Yeah, that's great. I, I love this focus on, on reimagining how things operate. I know that's one of the uh, the challenges. I think that a lot of people when they realize what well, you just mentioned here, this idea of shaming yourself or having these excuses for not doing the things you want to be doing. That kind of reimagining how you should live really does work in that way. Uh, one thing that I know I did this is years ago, back in my last day job. I had a very distracting environment that I was in. Uh, my coworkers, my bosses, it was kind of a chaotic place to work. And I did lots of changes on my own uh, to block distractions so I could work more effectively. And I know your book hits on company culture, which is one thing that I think for a lot of us, that's kind of what we think about when we think of distractions is that people are in my way. So can mm -hmm. you address kind of how that operates with trying to kind of reimagine our own selves, but in an environment that may not breed productivity? 
Oh, it's such a good point because, you know, as I was writing this book, I, I got about halfway through the research and I had only focused on the individual. Mm. And then I realized that, you know, I could tell you these four tactics to becoming indistractable and you can implement them in your life and it will benefit you, no doubt about it. However, if you operate in an environment, in a context, which makes focused work almost impossible, let's say, you know, you, you utilize these tactics, you do everything I say, and your boss insists on calling you at 9 p.m. on a Friday evening. Well, it's very hard to do what you say you're going to do, to be with your friends, to be with your family, to, to focus on self-care, whatever it is that you want to do with your time if your stupid boss keeps interrupting you all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, my, my first inclination was to say what, what most people told me when I was researching this book and, and researching, you know, wh where people's uh, distractions were coming from. They, they jumped to the technology. So a lot of people would blame Slack. Uh, the group, you know, the group chat app, which is the largest group chat service in the world. There's others, of course, but Slack kept coming up a lot or email or whatever productivity tool they were using or communication tool. They kept blaming the tools. So I, I went to pay Slack a visit and I found something amazing. So this is the this is the world's largest gr um, uh, group chat app. And you would think if the technology was the source of the problem, uh, who uses Slack more than the people who make it? So you would think that the people at Slack would be the most distracted people on earth, right? They would constantly have all these buzzes and dings <laughs> distracting them all day long. But if you go to Slack headquarters in San Francisco, at six o'clock, the office is empty. On weekends, it's empty. If you send a, a Slack message on nights and weekends, you get chastised. That, that's not what they do here. And what I discovered was that, in fact, it is not caused by the, by the technology, but then in fact, distraction in the workplace is a symptom of a cultural dysfunction. That if people can't find the time to focus, if they feel like they're constantly being pinged and dinged all, all day long, there are probably other skeletons in the closet. Because if you can't talk about this one problem of distraction, if you can't raise your hand and say, hey boss, you know, this is, this is not working for me so much. This is not what I expected. If you don't have that kind of open environment and, and a place to have these conversations, then this is where uh, and why people really get distracted. So I profile in the book about how companies that have a healthy culture and therefore don't struggle with distraction do three things differently. Number one, they have an environment that encourages psychological safety meaning you can talk about your problems, you can talk about your concerns without fear of retribution, without fear of getting fired. Two, they provide a platform for people to air these concerns. So at Slack, they have channels on Slack where you can air concerns and grievances about the company hmm. and, and, and uh, management will actually acknowledge that that has been seen and heard with emoji, believe it or not. They use emoji <laughs> and like show this eyes emotion, uh, emoji, like the, the CEO, Stuart Butterfield, will, you know, will, will, will type in an eyes emoji to say, yep, I acknowledge that I saw that problem. We're going to work on it. Uh, at BCG, they have regular meetings. So it's not that you have to use one specific tool to do this, but it's important. The second attribute is that employees have a place to voice concerns and knowing that they are, those concerns are, are vetted and heard. And then third, and perhaps most importantly, it's a work environment where management shows what it means to be indistractable. That it, it, you know, culture really does flow top down. That you can create this toxic culture of responsiveness all the time when management exhibits those traits, but when they don't. So for example, at Slack, if you walk into Slack headquarters, 
and this is a publicly traded Silicon Valley tech company. This is, this is a, a very successful company. You will see written on the walls of Slack headquarters in big pink letters, it says, work hard and go home. <laughs> it is part of the company culture that company management believes in being indistractable, that people can do their best work when they can work hard and go home. And so those are the three attributes. And, and, and so I tell you in the book about how to actually change that company culture. If you're, the, you know, if you're the boss, it's relatively easy. You can affect a lot of change. But even if you are not the boss, even if you're, you're an employee at, at the company, uh, you can actually start affecting change in your company to change that company culture with, with a few steps. What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with my sponsor, Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Finally achieve your new language goal in 2024 with Babbel the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me to learn real-life conversation skills in German, including ordering food and asking for directions without having to rely on language apps while traveling. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Now, here's a special limited-time deal for my listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash 5am. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash 5am, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash 5am. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, so what would you do then if you're not at Slack? You're not at a company that values your time and your productivity and there are 9 p.m. phone calls from your annoying boss. How do you go about trying to craft a different you know, scenario for yourself in those environments? Yeah, so the first step is to become indistractable yourself. And the four big steps, I don't know if I mentioned all four steps, the four steps, number one, we talked about master your internal triggers. Number two is to make time for traction. Number three is to hack back your external triggers. And number four is to prevent distraction with packs. And we can go into more depth in any of those if you'd like. But first step is to become indistractable yourself. The second step is to ask yourself if your workplace is consistent with your values. Look, if you're allergic to pollen, maybe you shouldn't be a forest ranger. <laughs> if you want to work on Wall Street, you need to know that part of working on Wall Street is 60, 70 hour weeks. That's kind of the norm. And if you don't want that, then you're probably in the wrong profession. So I don't have anyone, any problem with someone saying, look, I want to work like crazy. I want to be on call. This is what I want to do with my life because it's consistent with my values. If that's good for you, do it. I'm not telling you what your values should be. What I'm trying to rally against is this bait and switch that a lot of companies pull, right? The basic pact between employer and employee is I will pay you money. You will give me time. But if that's out of whack, if you come into a company thinking, okay, this is going to be a 40-hour week, and then you realize, yeah, it's 40 hours in the office, but it's another 10, 15 outside of the office constantly replying to emails and Slack channels on nights and weekends, well, that's a breach of trust, right? Mm. That is not what you bargained for. And so the way you change that 
is you leave the company and find something that's consistent with your values, but that's not always an option for people. I, I totally understand that. Then what you want to do is to start small. The Boston Consulting Group, one of the world's leading strategic consulting firms, had a terrible employee retention problem. And I, I know this firsthand. This was my first job out of college back in 2001. I worked at the Boston Consulting Group. And let me tell you, it was rough. I mean, we worked <laughs> crazy hours. We were constantly on call. And I always heard these, these stupid excuses of, you know, why do we always have to be connected? Because we're a global company. We have distributed teams. We're in the service business. Nothing can change because what if somebody needs us? This all changed when a researcher at Harvard by the name of Leslie Perlow went to the company and said, hey, look, what if we gave everyone on a case team one predictable night off per week? Okay, it's called PTO, predictable time off. What if everybody just got one evening that they knew they did not have to check their phones? Could that, could that work? And everybody said, no, couldn't work. We're in the services business. No way, no way. <laughs> and then she said, well, how about this? You all serve these Fortune 500 clientele, right? What if one of your clients said, this is what we want to do. You help us do it, right? You're smarty pants here at, at Boston Consulting Group. How do we do it? And I said, oh, okay, well, let, let's try and do this. <laughs> and what they found was by creating these small groups, it was eight people in a team. And all they did was to create a weekly meeting where people could sit down and talk about what was preventing them from having predictable time off. They could come up with solutions. Because now suddenly they had, A, remember those three criteria? Number one, provide psychological safety. Number two, provide a venue to air concerns. Now they had a venue and they had psychological safety knowing that they wouldn't be fired for saying, yeah, you know, I really would like some predictable time off, right? That was the, <laughs> that was the goal. And it turned out, this is, what, this is the amazing part. Not only did they give everyone predictable time off, but there was this flood of other problems that company management didn't know were even problems. Because look, if people aren't telling you that they hate being constantly connected, you know what else they're not telling you? They're not telling you about how your product could be improved. They're keeping all kinds of other secrets to themselves, which if they got out there, could improve your company tremendously. And that's exactly what happened to BCG. And they went from a company with very high employee churn to today they're, one, they're rated by their employees as one of the best places to work in America for several years running. I love it. Yeah, I, I like how the you know the group here had to turn on themselves their own strategies. But I think it's a really interesting case study there that you know if you look internally your own systems, there are solutions that are right there. And I know that one of the things that I've done is like as a guy that does productivity a lot, like I am my own worst enemy when it comes to giving advice on these kinds of things. Um, and one of the areas I struggle with the most is email. And I, mm -hmm. you mentioned Slack. And I know that that's obviously a, a big part of lots of companies, but other ones that use email, Mike's mine included. How do you have, I guess, is it guidelines or boundaries or rules around email usage and time usage uh, that kind of plays into the same idea of, of making sure that, you know, here are the hours that we work and hours that we don't, but making sure that you have kind of all the, the boxes checked every day. And I feel like email is always kind of the thing that comes up again and again as a way that says, if we have at, you know, a loss of access to email, the company falls apart. So how, yeah. do, you, how do you kind of create a, a culture where that works out well? Right. So from a company culture perspective, what you don't want to do is copy someone else's solutions. And I see this mm. all the time. People say, oh, I, I heard in the news that this one company has email free Fridays or meeting free Mondays. Let's do that. And it never works because that's not the problem. The problem is open communication. If you hire 
smart people who are consistent, who, who believe in the values of why you're in business. If you hired you know, uh, missionaries as opposed to mercenaries at your company, which you should have, <laughs> then those people have a vested interest in improving your company. And if their heart's in the right place, if that's really what they want to do, all you have to do is to give them a venue to come up with their own solutions to the problem. And so the, the, this group of eight people at the Boston Consulting Group who got together and just had this challenge. Here, here's the challenge. One hour a week, we're going to talk about how do we set up a system to give everyone predictable time off. And in no time, they figured out their own rules. It's not about tactics. It's about strategy. Tactics is what we do. Strategy is why we do it. The why we give people time off, why we give people time to, to focus. By the way, time off does not necessarily mean you're not working. Time mm. off means you are not being interrupted from constantly <laughs> working. So this is the bane of our existence when it comes to email is that nobody can spend time thinking anymore. We have no time for concentration because we're constantly communicating. <laughs> and the fact is we need time to shut down all these pings and dings so that we can do the one thing that knowledge workers are hired to do, which is solve hard problems. You can't solve hard problems unless you have time to concentrate. So the solution is to sit down with your staff, say, look, this is a problem that many of us are expressing. What can we do about it? And you'll come up with your own solutions based on these strategies. Now, the strategies are these four steps, right? The internal triggers, the external triggers, the uh, time for traction, preventing distraction with packs. You can implement these in your company. Let me give you one quick example. So in my research, I found that one, from, a, from a numbers perspective, one of the most common sources of distraction in the workplace was not even email. Email is terrible. We can talk about solutions for email. There's a lot of things you can do to reduce people's time spent on email. But the, among the number one sources of distraction was other colleagues. Hmm. Physical, physically, other colleagues interrupting each other during focused work. And this happens way more in open floor plan offices where you, know, you, you, you catch someone's eye or, or the, someone stops by your desk and they, we interrupt each other all the time uh, you know, for good intentions. Hey, let's talk about this gossip or you know, well, what's going on? How are you doing? The problem is if we, don't, if we don't plan our time to do focused work, we will be distracted even when we have good intentions here from our colleagues. So one of the solutions to this, by the way, is that in every copy of, of Indistractable is a screen sign. It's a piece of cardstock you pull out from the book. If you buy uh, the audiobook or, or the ebook, you can, you can print this out for yourself on my website, indistractable.com. You pull out this, this cardstock sign, you fold it into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And it tells your colleagues that right now I'm indistractable. Please come back later. You don't leave this on your screen all day, but for just a little bit of time, right? For a little bit of time to flush through your emails or, or, or do some strategic thinking, you don't want to be interrupted for that period of time. So that's, that's one way that we can do what's called hacking back, which is the third step out of four to becoming indistractable. Yeah, I, I used to do something similar to that where I had an office where people came in all the time and I started mm -hmm. doing things where I had like a sign that said, you know, conference call going on, you know, don't interrupt mm. me. And I had conference calls basically all day, every day in order to have some time <laughs> alone. And so I totally get that strategy of, of trying to figure out how to have that time you need for yourself. Um, yeah. Did is, you have a closed, you could close your door? In that office, I did have a, a door I could close and I started locking it and my boss got mad at me. So I had to stop. So there was, yeah, yeah. You, you try whatever could work, but I, I right, totally get right. that idea. And, and if you don't have, you know, it's wonderful if you have a closed door, that's terrific. Uh, but it's part of accepting that fact as company management. You, you know, you ask, what, what can we do as a cultural shift? It's accepting this fact that for people to do their best work, they need time to work without interruption. They need time to concentrate and focus. 
Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think about your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should check out my sponsor, Babbel. Finally achieve your new language goal in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me to learn real-life conversation skills in German, including ordering food and asking for directions, without having to rely on language apps while traveling. Now, here's a special limited-time deal for my listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash 5am. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash 5am, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash 5am. Rules and restrictions may apply. You know, one of the things that I always love to ask my guests on the show is about their daily habits. You know, this show is about early mornings and productivity. So I, from that perspective alone, you know, being indistractable obviously is a thing that begins, you know, from day in the first hour of the day. So what do you have set up in your life to make sure that you have your priorities in order, the right habits in order uh, to make sure that your day flows the way you want it to? Yeah. So, so we talked about step one is to master these internal triggers. Step two is to make time for traction. And that this directly relates to, to, you know, your schedule and your morning routines. Because what, what I found uh, is that, you know, there's research that finds that two thirds of Americans don't keep any sort of calendar. Okay. Two thirds of Americans wow. don't keep any. I remember I was, when I was researching the book, I had a friend of mine, uh, who really struggles with distraction. And she told me, Oh my God, the world is so distracting these days. I can't get anything done with what's going on in the news and Trump and Twitter. And my boss wants this and my kids want everything so distracting. And I, I said, wow, that's really tough. Can I see what it is that you wanted to do today? What did you get distracted from? And she took out her phone. She opened her calendar app and she showed it to me. And it was blank. <laughs> there was nothing on it. So here's the thing. You cannot call something a distraction unless you knew what it distracted you from. Mm. If you don't plan your day, someone else will. And so the new reality is of living in this day and age is that you have to plan out every minute of your day. Now, it's, oh, that's, you know, I need time to be spontaneous. I need white space. I need time to be creative. Fine, do it, but plan for it. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. If you have time in your day to just meditate, great. Uh, to be creative, to doodle, to do whatever you want, great. But put that time on your schedule because if you don't schedule the fun things and the not so fun things, nothing gets done. You have this to-do list that just go, and you know how this works, right? It goes from one day to the next, to the mm -hmm. next, to the next. Why? Because to-do lists are manifestations of our desired output. To-do lists have nothing to do with input. The input is, of course, our time. So the way I get things done is that everything in my day is planned for. If I don't have something in my calendar, it ain't going to get done. It doesn't go on the to-do list for that day unless I have time in my calendar to do it. And, and then the next thing we have to do is, of course, synchronize our schedules. We have to share that schedule with our 
boss, with our, uh, with our uh, domestic partners, right, with our friends. We have to put these things on our calendar and share those with the people in our lives who are stakeholders uh, and have some say in our time to make sure that we're synchronized and, and that we uh, fulfill our responsibilities to those various parties. I'm I'm still I can't believe that that many Americans don't have calendars. I just, oh my god, <laughs> that's, and that's it's my mind. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't used to either. <laughs> you know, I had, I just figured I'll I'll get things done, and of course I didn't get anything done because you right. know that 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 white canvas, that empty day, is a recipe for disaster. It's almost too much choice, and of mm. course you don't know the difference between traction and distraction unless you can point to something and say, ah, that's what I wanted to do. Oh, let me give you the most pernicious form of this is when I would sit down at my desk and say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm going to finish those slides. I'm going to finish that report. I'm going to do that, that uh, blog post, right? I'm going to do it right after I check email, right? <laughs> and and uh-huh. well, email is kind of worky, right? That that's kind of feels like something I should be doing. No, if it's something that you didn't plan to do, it's just as much of a distraction as watching YouTube videos or playing video games. That's the only way you know the difference between traction and distraction is to decide in advance what you're going to do with your time. And from that kind of perspective, how do you decide your top priorities then? Because obviously there's plenty of things to do. There's an endless to-do list to that degree. How do you know, like for the next hour, I'm going to do you know, Project X and, and not be pulled into other things? Like, do you have a certain filter or a way to decide? Like I decided ahead of time, this is important for these reasons. Or how do you kind of dictate what the calendar then looks like? Yeah, that's, that's a terrific question. So you want to do it with the right cadence. So I do this about a week's time because my calendar doesn't really change from week, uh, you know, within a week. It changes from week to week, but not within a week's time. Some people, their calendar changes every day so they can do this, this cadence more frequently. What you want to do is to start with your values. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. And so you start, you know, many people have this, this difficulty figuring out their priorities. And I say the best place to start is with these three life domains. There are three life domains. There's you at the center. That's the most important domain. You have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others or or do good work. The next domain is your relationships domain. And the third domain is the work domain. So the first place to start is don't worry about these big lofty goals you have. Start with how much time you would need to invest in each one of these three domains, doing various things in those three domains, to live out your values, right? I don't, I don't, you know, I used to talk this good game. If you, you know, talk to most people and you say, what are your values? What, what's most important to you? Oh, my kids, my family, my health, those are our values. But then when you say, okay, show me where you invest in those things. Where do you live out those values on your calendar? It's not there. So start with the me domain. Turn your values into time. How do you do that? You say, well, what do I want to do? What are the attributes of the person I want to become? If physical health is important to you, by the way, I'm not saying it should be. Your values are your values. I'm not going to tell you what your values should be. But if, for example, physical health is important to you, do you have time on your calendar to exercise? Uh, if, if mental, if, if, if you want to improve your, your knowledge and wisdom, do you have time to invest in those things on your calendar? That, those have to do with the me domain. Sleep, you know, we know the research is unequivocal. You need quality sleep. Is there time on your calendar to prepare for bed and actually go to bed? These kind of things need to be on your calendar. That's where you have to start first. Then your relationship domain. Do you have time for your friends on a regular basis? Friendship is absolutely critical for psychological well-being. We need friendships in our life. Do, is that on your calendar? 
time for your, your domestic relationships, right? Not only date days, that's easy. Do you have time on your calendar to fulfill your domestic responsibilities, you know, cleaning the house or uh, paying the bills or preparing, uh, you know, lunch for the kids, whatever it might be, that has to be on your calendar. Then your work obligations, right? Do you have time for all the aspects of your job that are important to you? Are they on your calendar? You know, do you have time for emails scheduled on your calendar, time to do focused work and think and strategize? Is that on your calendar? What you'll find is that your calendar fills up really, really quick, (laughs) right? And if you just follow that technique, you'll see if you have leftover time, and that's where you can put in your your more aspirational goals. But just starting with those base, you know, most people start the other way around, right? They start with, ooh, I want this big goal, and they put time for that without thinking about all the nuts and bolts of what you need to do every day. So first, start with the nuts and bolts. Start with taking care of yourself. Uh, with with your relationships and your work domain, and then see if you're living out your values according to that schedule. And then, of course, every week you adjust this. I'll give you a link. Uh, I made a tool to make this super, super easy, uh, and I'll give you a link for the show notes uh, for an online tool that can make this. It's called a schedule maker uh, that makes this very easy to do. It takes you about 30 minutes. And then every week what you're doing is you're reevaluating it. It takes about 15 minutes. I do it every single week to make sure that the week ahead is consistent with my values. And sometimes I need to adjust. Okay, a little bit more time for email, a little bit less, a little bit more time for this or that. Uh, But the idea here that now finally I can look at one sheet of paper and know for every minute of my day what's traction, what is distraction. That's a breakthrough. I love that. I'm curious too. I like this idea that you have the nuts and bolts first and the aspirational goals second. Was that something you learned over time was more effective? Or I know that most people really would start the other direction around. So why do you think the nuts and bolts need to be there first? Because that's what gets in our way, right? Mm-hmm. We, we say we have these aspirations to, I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> okay, when exactly are you going to do that? Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> so, you got to drop off the kids at school. You got you yeah. you to do your job. You have to take care of the bills. You got to do all these things. And so what inevitably happens is people say, okay, I'm, now today is my day to, to, to write, to, to write my novel, uh, but I got all these things to do mm. because they didn't plan when they're going to do all those other things. Whereas if they plan these in small increments, and by the way, this sounds like I'm a total control freak and that I have a lot of self-control. <laughs> exactly the opposite is true. I used to be clinically obese mm. for a good chunk of my life. I always have struggled with self-control and distraction. That's why I wrote this book. <laughs> to do this and nothing in the book is just personal anecdote by the way i hate these books that say oh take you know you know do, do this technique because it works for me without any scientific backing everything in the book is reviewed by peer reviewed is is a site's peer-reviewed studies uh and, and so these techniques have been around for a very very long time but it's the codification of the model all four steps in harmony that's what helps us become indistractable I love that. Fantastic. This has been awesome today, Nir. I really appreciate the advice here. Um, for our listeners today, want a copy of the book and learn more from you. Uh, where can they go? Thank you. Yeah. So my blog is called nearandfar.com. Nir is spelled like my first name, not N-E-A-R. It's spelled N-I-R. So N-I-R-and-far.com is my blog. The book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And there are all kinds of bonus content. Uh, there's an 80-page workbook that's totally free that you can all get at Indistractable. Dot com that's spelled i n the word distract a b l e so indistractable.com perfect i will have those links as well as the schedule maker on the show notes page this week uh near this has been great thanks a lot thank you this is great jeff thank you and for the action step this week 
become indistractable. Grab a copy of Nier's book and let his brilliant strategies guide you to gaining traction, controlling your attention, and achieving pure focus. JeffSanders.com slash 451 is the place to go for the episode notes. And of course, subscribe to this podcast in the app you're using right now. That's all I've got for you here on the 5 a.m. Miracle Podcast this week. Until next time, you have the power to change your life. And the fun begins bright and early. Hey, it's Jeff Sanders, and I'm here to tell you about Greg McEwen and his amazing show, The Greg McEwen Podcast, part of the Yap Media Network. Want to achieve more by doing less, all while avoiding burnout? You can design a life that really matters with Greg McEwen, author of New York Times bestsellers, Effortless and Essentialism. His mission is to help you advocate and negotiate your way to remarkable results. Every Tuesday, Greg discusses one key topic he finds interesting and valuable through the lens of the essentialist. Every Thursday, he invites thought leaders, entrepreneurs, celebrities, and people like you for inspired weekly conversations focused on learning how to do what matters first and do less but better. His content will stir your thoughts and spark inspiration and action. And his British accents, well, that's just the cherry on top. Subscribe to the Greg McEwen podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.